This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by Broadway in Tucson. For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, hip-hop artist Mona Haydar and her husband, Sebastian Robbins, talk about the great Muslim-American road trip. Community activist Cesar Aguirre recounts some of his misspent youth for Archive Tucson. Learn about the coordinated effort to return the long-fin dace minnow to the Santa Cruz River. And find out about one of the many mysterious mythical creatures of the Southwest. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The hip-hop created by Mona Haydar often catches people off guard. Haydar is a Muslim-American born in Michigan. She's well aware of the dichotomies that others see in a highly educated, hijab-wearing woman with deep faith in Islam. Sebastian Robbins says that he's been a seeker his entire life, and he converted to the Muslim faith sometime before he and Mona became married. Following the Mother Road, Route 66, the pair journey across the nation, finding Muslim communities and individuals at every stop along the way. I wanted to talk with them about the experience and one of their earlier collaborations, a project called Ask a Muslim. It involved Mona standing in a public space with a handmade sign inviting passers-by to engage in conversation. When I saw some video of this project, the question that I would ask immediately sprang into my mind. Are people kind to you? It's a beautiful question. The Ask a Muslim project was Sebastian's baby and brainchild, and he really brought it to life and sort of nurtured the idea and fostered it and fed it until it was something real that, you know, took place in in this world. And the answer to that question is sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I think that's just life in general. And regardless of if people are kind or not, regardless of if I'm met with kindness or bigotry or hatred or joy and acceptance, or just tolerance even. Even in the midst of all of that, my response is to meet people with an open heart and with a lot of joy and to meet them as I would wish to be met. And all that really matters to me is the way that I meet others because I know that that is the only thing in my control. And so when I meet others with excellence and with beauty and have no attachment to their response, I feel happy. I feel inner peace because I have done my utmost. Sebastian, finding out that the Ask a Muslim project was your idea was surprising to me, and I'd like to know if what resulted from that project was what you anticipated, or were you surprised by the outcome? I was very surprised. Similar to our road trip, we went in with pretty modest hopes and goals. We, you know, to be totally honest, we're kind of seeking some healing in ourselves. It was a very dark time of the year. We were in the Northeast. It was late November, but it felt like a very dark time globally in the wake of these two extremist attacks. It was really the first time in my life as a white male college educated person that I felt fear 
that I felt real trepidation being in the world. And I'm a very gregarious and extroverted person, and the fear and the isolation was really getting to me. So my initial impulse was really just to connect with people um, and this crazy idea of handing out donuts and coffee and inviting conversation. You know, what transpired um, was really a blessing both for us and that it, it was healing. There was a real hunger among other people and not just among other Muslims to connect, to break out of the cloud that I really felt was descending at that moment. And we were just so pleased that our project was met with openness and curiosity, but more than that, that it spawned all these other people to set up booths and tables and their own versions of Ask a Muslim. Um, that was not our intention at all. Uh, and we, we had no idea the reach that it would ultimately have. Mona, in the first episode of your new program, The Great Muslim American Road Trip, you talk about the fact that one of your major motivations was because after spending uh, time as parents and, um, you know, graduate students and everything else, that you and Sebastian were looking for a way to maybe reconnect and come back together in a more close manner. It's funny to me that in order to do that, you chose to take a road trip and meet a million people. Um, (laughs) It seems counterintuitive, but... How do you think it ended up resolving your situation? This beautiful thing happens when you are open to mystery, and especially when you make yourself vulnerable. And road trips are magical in that way because you don't know what you'll find at the next exit or the next city or town. And for Sebastian and I, just having been cooped up at home with our two boys, When we were on the road, we had these long stretches where we could just talk at length about things um, in a way that we hadn't since we we met. And that was a gift. And in a way, kind of just being open to one another and all the beautiful people we met, that set us on this journey back to each other. And I'm really grateful for it. It's not too long after you embark on your trip in Chicago, going down Route 66, you end up in St. Louis. And I've never been to St. Louis, but if I ever visit, there's a restaurant I'm going to look for. Uh, You meet this lovely Bosnian family that runs a place there. Tell us a little bit about what you found in St. Louis, and was that a good um, harbinger of what was to come? Yeah, St. Louis was amazing. We still talk about that restaurant and the people we met. Our tour guide, or our muse, if you will, uh, for our time there was Professor Edward Curtis, who is just an encyclopedia of knowledge on many subjects, but particularly on Islam. He took us to the St. Louis Museum and talked about a wave of immigration that came for the St. Louis World's Fair, the first major wave of Islam in America since slavery. Later, he brings us to the Gerbic Restaurant. Um, which is um, run by the beautiful Gerbic family, a Bosnian family who came to the U.S. about 20 years ago. And they were part of welcoming in refugees from the Balkans. Um, They would go to the airport in St. Louis and basically wait there for people to come because there were so many people arriving and shuttle them home in their minivans, give them homes, give them jobs. Um, From that effort, um, the father rebuilt an old restaurant into what exists today, and you see this in the show. And so we really got this past, present, and future experience of of Islam. Dr. Curtis makes a, a really interesting comment, and I'd like your reaction to that. 
Muslims are not somehow new or foreign to right. America. Right. Mm. But I mean, you've got to take your time mm. and do it right and see Route 66, and you'll discover that the American story mm. is the Muslim story, mm. and the Muslim story is the American story. And you're a Christian. That's right. So I just have to ask, why are you interested in this topic? I think because of my Arab background, you know, whether you're Muslim or not, if you're Arab, Islam is extremely important to right. your identity. Right. And so I- I'm, I'm assuming people might assume you're Muslim, right? With a name like Edward Curtis, it wasn't, but you know, after 9-11, I became a lot browner and a lot more Muslim. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I just think about, the fallout that happened after 9-11 and all the people who um, have faced intense discrimination as a result of it, as a result of a handful of people who committed a terrible crime, you know, an entire category of people are just deemed terrorists or whatever the, the slurs are. One thing that really breaks my heart is when People like him or people in the Sikh community who, you know, wear their beautiful turbans, they are discriminated against in such an intense way while not being Muslim. We talked in depth. Obviously, not all of it made it into the show, but Dr. Curtis and I spoke in depth about what that meant. I just find it so beautiful that the response from the Sikh community or from somebody like Dr. Curtis that their response isn't to say, I'm not Muslim, you know, and instead their response is to say, like, why would you behave this way in general to anyone, Muslim or non-Muslim, rather than just casting the hatred another way? You know, this is a faith practiced by billions of people, the beautiful tradition. Well, you know, even though some people may weaponize it in ways that are wrong, you know, it, it just kind of passes the hatred on instead of passing a little bit of light and love on. I think the next conversation that I saw in the first episode that's really going to stick with me, Mona, is when you're at the picnic, which is a, a gathering of physicians and their families. And you talk to this girl who was born in Kansas and she shares her experience with you. Like, I am the epitome of like <laughs> Midwestern, but people still look at me and they see terrorists just because I have family in Pakistan. They want me to go back to Pakistan, go back to Pakistan. Right. Like I was, I'm, I was born in Kansas. <laughs> when I saw your video, I, it made me feel like I had somebody there. Like it, I felt seen. Like I'm not, I'm obviously not a hijabi, but I do understand like some of the, and I also am like- Covered up or not? Yeah, that's my, that was my favorite. I was about to pull that up. That was my favorite line. <laughs> I loved that. That was the covered up or not, we all, that don't, was my- Don't ever take don't us ever, for granted. Yeah, I loved that line. That made me like giddy. I, I loved that line. Covered up or not, don't ever. Talking to her was just such a beautiful affirmation for me and a reminder of why I do what I do. Um, is because of people like her, people who don't see themselves out there in the world, in media. And for me, a representation is a mixed bag because I don't believe in toxic positivity and toxic negativity. I believe in truth. And balance is what's hard to find. Authenticity is what's hard to find. Um, and so the show, I feel like when people tune in, they will really see that these are just real stories. 
and folks will get to see the real lives and the real hearts of real people. That actually also brought Mona and I closer together because we felt inspired by the people we met. We felt inspired by the communities we met. We felt humbled by how little we knew. And then we'd get back in the car and talk about it and say, okay, how are we going to come back to our lives and reinvigorate our time here on this planet and reinvigorate our commitment to God and, and how we want to be in the world through God? And that really is a fire that's still burning for us. And those are questions we're still asking almost a year later. That was Mona Hadar and Sebastian Robbins. The story of their Route 66 odyssey from Chicago to L.A. is called The Great Muslim American Road Trip. You can watch it Tuesday at 10 p.m. on PBS 6 or stream the episodes at pbs.org. One mission of Special Collections at the University of Arizona Libraries is to collect and preserve the stories of Tucsonans both large and small. Today, Cesar Aguirre is a community organizer and socially conscious artist who's been called the pride of Santa Maria. But there was a time in his life when he was following a different path. In this edition of Archive Tucson, produced by Angus Anderson, we'll hear Aguirre confess some of what he saw as part of a drug ring operating in a Tucson neighborhood. So you get up, you smoke your weed, do your whatever you're into, and you start making the phone calls, trying to figure out who's going to meet where, at what time for what, who's got what, what do you need. Um, and it was all business from there. Sometimes it was packaging. Sometimes it was getting the connects lined up and making sure everything goes smoothly. So that was like the moving the pounds and stuff like that. When we got into the whole crack and cocaine, that was like a whole different world too because I pretty much lived at the crack house three or four days out of the week. And we all had our shifts. Each of us have our, had our shifts at the crack house. From that house, we would cook and manufacture it all. We would break it all down and weigh it out and put it into baggies. From there, we would also distribute it. We had our dependable crack users on the streets with walkie-talkies and bikes watching the neighborhood, surveilling, making sure there weren't police or anything or anybody suspicious or unusual in the neighborhood. Um, and so those were late nights working. We'd work all night until like four or five in the morning and we'd sleep until about noon. Yeah, believe it or not, there was a family that lived there for a little while too, but uh, no, nah, I mean, it was just like a regular house. You know, if you walked in, you would just see the sofas and the TV and it wasn't dirty, it was always clean. and. It was usually three to six guys at the house. We all had our, our jobs and responsibilities. Uh, the only thing that was a little bit strange about the house was that anywhere you looked or like if you anywhere you sat, there would be a gun near you. Um, so there was guns everywhere, guns under the cushions, behind the sofa, on top of the fridge, behind the TV. I mean, there was anywhere you were in the house, you could access a gun. The life of the house was kind of like a like kind of like a frat house, you know, like a party house. Guys kind of coming in and out all the time. Once the sun goes down, there's a lot of drinking and partying. Um, usually until about 11 or 12, then it kind of calms down a little bit because then you have just the dope fiends coming. There was only certain people that we would allow to use there. And they were people that like, you know, our friend's dad that we've known forever and He's really down and really cool, but he's a crackhead, so we keep him supplied with crack so he doesn't have to do anything, you know, crooked, like turn, you know, screw people over to, to get his fix. 
and we would make sure that he would you know have in a, in a sense he'd have a job he'd either clean the yard for us once a week and or keep an eye on us for on, on the house for certain shifts clean the house we even had people who would go and buy groceries for us with their food stamps card and bring us back a receipt and we would cash them out and crack when we'd get the call from a certain person who, who's passed away now he's not he's, he was killed a few years back we'd get the call would shut down shop and people would know like you know when this door is closed when we have this on the door you don't come so when we'd get that call all right everybody out and only the most trusted people that ran the business were in the were in the house when it would come and this guy would come with a duffel bag full of kilos and i mean like i've seen 10 kilos out on on a table at once he was connected to the guys from mexico bringing it and he would all right, who's getting what? Here's here's the money. We'd count out all the money. Okay, here's a kilo. Here's a quarter key for you. Here's an eighth of a key for you. Do, do, do. All right, how much are we cooking? And then they'd pull out the pots and they'd start cooking up all the crack and we'd weigh it all out and cut it. Um, and so it was like that. And I remember one time we had a birthday party there for a kid and we had a jumping castle in the backyard. And it, it's strange, but people don't realize that back before the 2000s, there was a code of ethics that you followed strictly. If you have beef with somebody, you don't go handle it at a party or in a public place. You do it where there's not gonna be innocent people hurt. You don't involve kids, you don't involve people's families. There's just all these rules that we had that we lived by. And um, at about that time, things started eroding and people started snitching on each other. People started you know, shooting up houses where families lived and things like that. And so we didn't think there was gonna be any problems. We threw this birthday party for the kid and uh, one of the neighborhood kids. and later in the day towards the end of the party they did a drive-by and thank god all of the kids and all the people were in the backyard but they shot up all the front of the house and so that was like really the daily life i mean once the sun would go down i would sit out on the porch with my gun and just watch and wait and see who came by and i had a guy one time pull up in front of the yard and slow down and he was going like this to the seat and I ran up to the car and I pulled out a big old Tech 9 and I freaked him out. He, he was looking for a CD he dropped, poor guy. And he had no idea what he had gotten into, but that was the way we lived. It was like a day-to-day thing for us. The storyteller was Cesar Aguirre, who cleaned up his life, left the underworld behind, and became a community activist and devoted family man. He was recorded and produced by Angus Anderson for Archive Tucson, an oral history project of special collections at the University of Arizona Libraries. You can find more stories from Tucson's past, including the full interview with Cesar Aguirre, at archivetucson.com. In 2020, a tiny fish called the Gila top minnow was successfully reintroduced to the Santa Cruz River. This summer, a coordinated effort by Pima County, Arizona Game and Fish, and the Santa Cruz Heritage Project is hoping to bring a species called the longfin dace minnow back into the waters around downtown Tucson after more than a century of absence. Next, UA Natural Resources professor Steve Bogan will describe the process. We are here today to reintroduce the longfin dace to the lower part of the Santa Cruz River here in, in Tucson. So this is a fish species that historically was, was really abundant in the river all through Tucson. Um, and then when the river dried up in uh, 1913, 1914, 
that spelled the end of our local longfin dace population. Oh, look at all that water. So we went out this morning with uh, Arizona Game and Fish and Pima County biologists uh, out to Sienega Creek to the natural preserve area that the county owns. First haul and then uh, brought with some nets as well. So we had what are called seine nets, which are basically two poles with a long uh, series of net in between. And a person stands on either side holding the poles and walks through the water and scoops up the fish. So we did that at Sienega Creek um, and captured about 600 uh, longfin dace there and it took about an hour and a half or so to do that. We want to keep the fish in the water as much as possible. Um, then we put them in the buckets and uh, filled the buckets with water. Six. Seven, eight. Put a little aerator in the bucket, a little bubbler, so the fish had enough oxygen while they were being transported in these buckets and then hiked about a half mile back to our vehicles. Uh, and then we drove them here about a, a 45 minute drive. The main things you have to worry about with transporting fish are, are temperature and oxygen of the water. Uh, so temperature is 19.7 degrees Celsius. If the fish are in a warm water when they're being transported, that gives them some stress. Um, and when the oxygen levels are low, just like us, they have a hard time breathing. Um, so we really want to make sure that the tanks that Arizona Game and Fish have are really well insulated to kind of keep the temperature stable and lower while they're being transported. And then the bubblers help to keep oxygen in the water. We have some buckets so you can add like a little water in. So we slowly they are a little bit sensitive. I drive the same way I normally would, but I always do kind of feel like I should be like extra gentle while I'm driving the fish. It's like you, you have a taxi or you're like an Uber driver, but you have 600 fish. 32. Okay, 33, 34, 35, 36. If you took us and then you, you know, just kind of transported us somewhere else and it was you know, totally different conditions. We might be a little bit frazzled. So it's a lot of trying to decrease stress as much as possible and you hope for high survival rates in their new home. So if it continues to dry before we got, get monsoons, those fish could potentially just dry up. So in, in one way, we're kind of salvaging those fish. What was the count in that bucket you just finished off, Nate? 62. The longfin dace has been a target for a while because the habitat, especially that we have here in the Corazon or the Agua Nueva Reach, is pretty ideal longfin dace habitat. Um, but it's so distant from those source populations or those potential source populations in Cienega Creek that they haven't been able to make it back here on their own. So we're basically giving them a, a helping hand to, to come back here. Sometimes you gotta give a little nudge because they will try to shelter in it. You know, it's exciting for Longfin days because we're bringing back some of the biocultural heritage that the city of Tucson had. You know, if you go back 110 years ago, there's a lot of reports of how abundant these fish were in the river before it dried up. Um, so we're bringing some of that back. And, you know, longfin days is, is a great species because it's not endangered. So people aren't, you know, worried about it legally yet. Um, but it is one of those things that is disappearing as places dry up from drought, small streams dry up from drought across Arizona. Um, so the more populations we can support and enhance in places like the Santa Cruz River that aren't gonna dry up, um, we're basically kind of putting money in the bank so this species doesn't become endangered in the future.
So it's been you know, almost 110 years to the date that we've seen um, dace happily swimming in the river downtown. Um, so that in and of itself is, a, is something to celebrate, to bring, bring a species back after an entire century of being gone. We heard the voices of Steve Bogan, assistant professor of natural resources at the University of Arizona, and Anna Ringelman, aquatic wildlife specialist for Arizona Game and Fish. The story was produced by Liz Scherfius and Megan Mykofsky for Arizona Illustrated on PBS6, and you can watch it now at azpm.org. The desert around us is vast. It's an emptiness that somehow asks to be filled. And we all know there are a multitude of creatures who live in the desert that will almost never be seen. The student storytellers from the Youth Center at Literacy Connects recently created their own Mythical Creatures of the Southwest. Next, Izzy, a seventh grader, shares the story of her creation called Ark. Hello, I'm Izzy, and I would like to tell you the story about Ark. Controlling the water. Ark originates from Earth but has been in hiding until climate change. Wandering, it finds shelter in a cave while it's cooling, the water is collected. A bat came towards it and Ark killed it, feeling threatened. Once it finally cooled down, it hovered its way back to the desert, giving and taking water. It sounded like mumbling voices, whisper over whisper, so you can't hear them very clearly. It controls portions and shapes of water and carries five spheres of water on each finger. I discovered this animal and didn't wait to make this discovery public. Once humans discovered this creature, they used it to hydrate areas that are short of water. The discovery of this creature was seen as the savior of humanity. It bonded with me for making it feel useful and wanted. All it wanted was attention. ARC was created by Izzy, a 7th grader and part of the Youth Center at Literacy Connects. Kids can find ways to connect with their creativity at literacyconnects.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. The show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance from Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Thank you to Broadway in Tucson for their support of Arizona Spotlight.